Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. So Ephesians 1, 9 to 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Now, if you've been paying attention, I preached on this section last week and actually the week before, but I'm going to focus on the phrase here, sum up, and the significance of that. And the term here, sum up, and one of the early church fathers is actually going to take this term, and he's going to say this is the economy of the entire work of Christ. And it signifies to bring something to its main point. It's just, it's sum, it's the comprehensive sum. And so the verb has the meaning of sum up and the noun denotes a summary or a statement of the main point. And the prefix here adds the sense of repetition or renewal. So he's going to use the word recapitulate to translate this word or the equivalent of it. And so the compound verb, it follows the common meaning used in rhetorical texts of recapitulating, of summing up. We see Paul use the same term in Romans 13.9. He says that love sums up the law. And of course this is actually Christ says the same thing. Paul is just repeating Jesus here. And so the summing up in Christ is the meaning of that all things entail, you know, are included. The cosmos, in fact, is included in Paul's description. And in fact, if there's, unless there's any doubt, this summing up or this recapitulation, it applies certainly to the human sphere, but it applies to seemingly the universe, to the cosmos. And so Paul says this. He says it includes everything. Things in heaven and things on earth. I don't think he could state it any stronger. And throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul explains the all things, what he means by this. And indicates that all things have been placed in 122 under Christ's feet. In 4.9, all things, he says, are derived from the Creator. In 4.6, there is one God and Father of us all who is over all and through all and in all. I think he's explaining what all includes. He's not leaving anything out. So the recapitulation, the summing up, is cosmic. It's referring to the universe. It's referring to the powers behind and beyond the universe. The powers which sustain it and renew it. And even those that challenge it. 
which is part of the teaching of the book of Ephesians, that the principalities and powers are going to be challenged in this recapitulation. Now, we don't want to limit the summing up to the human realm, but it certainly includes the human realm. I'm looking at the theological dictionary here, and it says the summing up of the totality takes place in its subjection to the head. You know, the head is Christ. The subjection of the totality to the head takes place, it says, in the coordinating of the head, Christ, and the church. As the church receives its head, Christ, the totality receives its definitive, its comprehensive, its self-repeating summation. In the head, in Christ, the totality is comprehended afresh in its sum. Now Irenaeus is going to quote this passage and the doctrine of recapitulation. It's really just from Ephesians 1.10. He's saying this is the economy of the entire work of Christ. And he's talking then about the idea of an overarching economy. You know, this is what Christ is doing. And also the challenge to the powers. And so he references Ephesians 1.10 where we read that God set forth his purpose in Christ as a plan is the term here for the fullness of time to recapitulate all things. This was God's plan from the beginning. You know, Christ crucified from the foundation of the world. And so for Irenaeus, I think Irenaeus is saying, oh, this is Paul's doctrine of the atonement. This is Paul's doctrine of the economy of the work of Christ to encapsulate. Some would say when Paul says summing up, in a sense he's summing up the book of Ephesians or the economy of the book of Ephesians, but more than that. Now, there's no question that for Irenaeus and Paul, I believe, this economy is cosmic and certainly inclusive of the human realm. He references Colossians, and so Ephesians and Colossians seem to be very parallel books, and maybe they were written very close together, uh, that is, at the same time. And in Colossians 3.10, he says, In saying, according to the image of him who created him, he indicates the recapitulation, the summing up, of the man who at the beginning was made after the image of God. That is, Adam. That Christ is the second Adam, summing up all that was in the first Adam, but of course in this recapitulation is the fulfillment, is the salvation. And so he describes this summing up, this recapitulation, as encapsulating the meaning of Christ's death. The blood of every just man, and he's just referring here to Matthew 23, which Jesus is referring to when he's describing the meaning of his death. The blood of every just man shed on the earth will be requited. From the blood of the just Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. That's the history of murder, by the way. He's going first murder, last murder of the Hebrew scriptures. Whom you killed between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, 
that all that will come upon that generation. And so Christ, in Irenaeus' explanation, he's pointing to the future recapitulation in himself of the shedding of blood. That Christ is going to recapitulate the history of murder and undo that history in some way. He's going to undo the murder of the prophets from the beginning, the requital of their blood, he says, through himself. Here is the blood spilled from the foundation of the world, and Christ then, through his shedding of blood, he's undoing the history of murder. He's deconstructing it. He would not have demanded requital unless it was to be saved. And the Lord would not have re recapitulated these things in himself if he too had not been made flesh and blood. Why was Christ a man? Well, precisely in the summing up, this recapitulation in part of the history of murder. He too, if he had not been made flesh and blood in accordance with the first form work, thus saving in himself at the end what had perished at the beginning in Adam. Cain kills Abel. Christ is summing up this history. But all of what has failed or fallen in Adam is being recapitulated in Christ. And so Irenaeus, I think like Paul, sees this recapitulation, this summing up. It engages the devil. It engages the forces of evil. It defeats Satan. as is what he says. In recapitulating everything, he recapitulated our war against the enemy. That is, we had this battle. Maybe we've often had this battle, but certainly in Adam. And we lost. He called forth and defeated the one who at the beginning in Adam had led us captive. And he trod on his head, as in Genesis God said to the serpent, I will set enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. She will watch your head and you will watch her heel. Quoting from Genesis 3.15. So each of the above is true, though, because death saves as it recapitulates, or as it is the culmination of a total or a universal recapitulation. Again, I think Irenaeus is just repeating what Paul is doing. He says, the maker of the world is truly the word of God. He is our Lord, who in the last times was made man existing in this world. He's referencing John 1.10. And invisibly contains everything that was made. In him was nothing made that has been made. He is the wisdom of the world and was imprinted with the key. It's the Greek letter, you know, the word here, C-H-I, which is a symbol, a shortened form of the name for Christ. The shape of key in everything as word of God, governing and disposing everything. Therefore he came in visible form into his own region, John 1.11, and was made flesh, John 1.14, and was hanged from the wood in order to sum up, recapitulate everything in himself.
And so for Irenaeus, and I think he's true here to Paul, this summing up is the total framework of the work of Christ. Literally bringing together heaven and earth. That is, the man of heaven comes to earth, the God-man. The things in the heavens are spiritual, Irenaeus says, while those on earth are the dispensation related to man. Therefore, he recapitulated these in himself by uniting man to the spirit and placing the spirit in man, himself the head of the spirit. What's the spirit? You know, don't, don't get lost here. The spirit is life, right? If we lose the spirit, we've lost life. But now we're given life once again. But of course, we're given God in the spirit, the very life of God that he is himself the head of the spirit and giving the spirit to be the head of man. For it is by this spirit that we see and hear and speak. It's by the spirit that we do everything. In other words, in this singular word, recapitulation, summing up, which he applies universally, Irenaeus is indicating there is a singular economy by which to understand the work of Christ and the Christian participation in that work. Now this may sound funny. You say, well, of course there's a singular economy. But I think we can get lost. I think sometimes that it can be assumed when we read the New Testament and we come to no vocabulary in the New Testament, that we come to certain vocabulary, then we don't know what to do with it, as if it's describing something different. But I think the point is that all of this vocabulary is describing the same thing. It's describing this participation in the Trinity. And this coheres around a singular understanding of God's relationship to the world. And I think that's what's captured in the notion of recapitulation. And so our overall understanding of the key vocabulary, you know, in Christ, maybe that's one of the key phrases. It's not dependent. We don't have to go to each context. I'm not saying we shouldn't. But we don't have to study the etymology. We don't have to understand the context to understand what participation in Christ is. That is, it's not a new thing every time. So walking in Christ, being in Christ, taking on the likeness of Christ, being adopted into the family of God, being united with Christ, being part of the body of Christ, being joined to the head, being baptized, Partaking of communion. Partaking of his body. You know, we could just list dozens and dozens of words. But they're all referring to the same reality. And I think this summing up, this recapitulation, gets at this overall economy. Now, that has been lost to us for some reason. Through church history, through theology... This singular economy, it's either gone missing for many Christians or it's been qualified in much theology and Christian understanding. So I'm going to give you a bad example here. If I lose you and you come back, don't get lost. I'm not giving you a good example. I'm giving you a bad example. And I'm going to reference a scripture and give you an interpretation. Romans, key passage, Romans 6, verses 3 to 5. And in this passage, Paul is describing being baptized into Christ. 
And he uses a series of terms here. And they seem to all be referring to the same thing, that we walk in newness of life. And by the way, this walk of Paul's is key in Ephesians, but I think it's key in many of his books. They have become united with him in the manner of his death, he says, and therefore in the likeness of his resurrection. And so the baptism, the walk, the likeness, or being in Christ are all referring, I think, then to a, the same economy. And the understanding of the nature of his likeness in 6.5 of Romans 6, it really is key. You know, what does this word likeness mean? That we have the likeness of Christ. Is it just proximity, a, a kind of vague representation, or is it participation in who Christ is? And so the determining of the meaning of the word likeness, I think, is key to understanding what we mean by salvation. It's key to understanding certainly what we mean by baptism. Probably key to what we mean when we're doing communion. But just the Christian life. How is it that we are like Christ? What is the nature of this likeness? What is salvation? How does it work? And I guess that we shouldn't just say, oh, well, we'll figure this out from Romans 6, 5 only. But we need to figure this out. In other words, we need to bring in the whole New Testament, in a sense, to, to understand. But then you turn to commentators on Romans 6 and see what they say about Romans 6 and determining the meaning of the word likeness. And you find the wildest variation. It can be taken, some say, as I'm quoting here, a corresponding reality. That is, that it would make baptism a likeness, but it's once removed from the original. It's sort of like it, but not the same thing. We're sort of like Christ in this understanding, but we're not. Christ, we're not the same thing. The similitude is pictured as an inward event by many people. You know, this is part of the Protestant Reformation, the Zwinglian kind of idea, but also there in Luther and Calvin. James Dunn, who is a very famous New Testament scholar, writes, the thought is not of integration with Christ's death as such, as though believers could actually participate in a historical event that took place 20 to 25 years earlier. He says that's all dead and gone. We don't participate in Christ. We don't participate in his death and resurrection. And so in Dunn's description, there's a gap between the subject, the imaging subject, or the archetype. And he actually turns to Greek philosophical thought, Greek wisdom, to explain what he means. He quotes Plato in Parmenides, in which finite things are like, he uses the Greek word, in which the heavenly ideas are expressed. And so as Dunn works this out in regard to baptism, and I'm just using Dunn as an example, but I think he's an example of a huge swath of Christianity. The question, you know, really the question here is what do we have in Christ? And he's just saying, well, it's a kind of vague imitation. That we really don't overcome the gap between the subject and the object. 
And he further illustrates this likeness. He says it's the same word as the likeness of an idol and the same concept, the same metaphysical concept. It's intended to give representation to spiritual and transcendent realities. Concrete representation of things that otherwise we don't have, we can't participate in. And then he likens it to a mirror image. It's like an idol, he says, and it's not a direct participation. And so this raises the question, you know, then in Romans 8.3, all of salvation in 8.3 is dependent upon whether Christ's likeness, same word, to the flesh, you know, did he really become man? Or is this just a kind of facade, an image? And so where Irenaeus in the early church understood the economy of Christ to be a real-world defeat of sin, death, and the devil in and through his real-world humanity, his assumption of humanity and challenge to sin, I think one of the prime markers of the loss of this economy, we lose any sense that Christ is defeating evil. We don't know what that means anymore. And we've made of Christianity and the cross of Christ a kind of legal fiction in which we merely receive an imputed righteousness. And the question then is what is the status, not only of baptism, but of course baptism becomes question, you know, why do that? But really any event is removed by the passage of time. You know, is Christ only available? as a kind of historical event. If we're saying that, I don't think that's Christianity. We're not just here to study history. We're saying that we participate in who he is. I don't think he operates in some sort of legal fiction, an economy found only in the mind of God. And this then would not pertain, you know, to the cosmos in any way, and certainly not to a real world defeat of evil. And so what Dunn and those who follow him, I don't know how to categorize this. I don't think it's all Protestants, but it's many Protestants. I don't think it's all Catholics. I don't, you know, but many people would read in this fashion a kind of nominalist understanding, specifically denying or missing what the early church taught in this passage of recapitulation. It is precisely in this conjunction that Irenaeus, by the way, Irenaeus develops his doctrine in connection with Ephesians 1.10 and Romans. He references this passage, Romans 8.3. He says, he too was made in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin and to cast it and as now a condemned thing, away beyond the flesh but that he might call all man forth into his likeness, key word there, assigning him as his own, imitator to God and imposing on him his father's law, in order that he may see God. That is, this is a real world participation. And granting him power to receive the father, the very being of God, the participation, being the word of God who dwelt in man and became the son of man that he might accustom man to receive God. 
He became man that we might become God, that we might become participants in God. That we might become accustomed to receiving a God and for God to dwell in man according to the good pleasure of the Father. Recapitulation, summing up. I think it expresses the all-encompassing economy that gives meaning to the dozens of descriptions in the New Testament, the multiple words describing this participation, a participatory ontology, if you will. That is, the very ground of being is such that we participate in who God is. It serves at once as a picture of the economy of salvation in its defeat of sin, death, and the devil, and the bringing of all things to full participation in God. And maybe the mark then of a failed theology is the lack of this integrating vision due to some sort of metaphysical misunderstanding which falls short of this summing up, this recapitulation, which we're assured by Paul we have in Christ. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.